Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joy today, he's the number one best-selling author, survivor, coach, trainer, entrepreneur. It's Michael Harris. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing really awesome. It's uh, I, I live in Central Oregon. I, I live in the mountains at about 3,700 feet, and it is our last warm day. We might even get a little snow on Wednesday, but it's been in the 70s for a bit, so it's going to be a switch. Well, here in Missouri, you never know what's going to happen each day, but we're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the end. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? I'm I'm from Oregon. I was born and raised here. I was actually, I was raised in Portland. My dad was an entrepreneur. He was really an oil and gas jobber. And he he was at the time... Many years ago, he was the largest independent oil distributor in the state of Oregon. Wow. And he passed back in 85. And at the time he passed, he had maybe about 100 gas stations. So I, I grew up around my dad's business, the idea of entre- entrepreneurship. Um, in addition to that, he had a couple of other uh, companies as well. But that was his, his main focus. Um, had a lot of fun growing up. My dad, we he even we had some property and he built a baseball field uh, oh. for the neighborhood in in our field. And so that field, not only did we play baseball, but I I suspect, and I'm not gonna give away too many secrets, I don't think, but <laughs> um, you know, there was first cigarettes out there, there was first beers, I think there was probably first sex. There was a lot of things that the kids do, and that was kind of happened on our property, you know, back in the, in the backfield back there. And it was just a lot of fun. I was junior champion at Portland Golf Club at 12 years old. I was a hotshot golfer. Then something happened, and you said you didn't look in too much, so um, I may tell you some things that you don't know, but at 12 years old, I had a water skiing accident. And it was shortly after I'd won the club championship and we were down at the Oregon coast at a lake. And I was not only a hotshot golfer, hotshot baseball, hotshot water skier, whatever it was, right? And so we were going around the, the lake and I always liked to do beach landings as much as I could if there was a beach mm-hmm. present. Not, not everywhere there was a beach present, but on this lake, there was a beach. So... I was coming around the the lake. It was an oval lake and outside of the wake. So I was increasing my speed. Another boat cut in front of our boat. So our boat had to do a a sharp turn to avoid it. And it whipped me even that much harder. So I ended up hitting the beach. I don't know how fast I was going. I was going fast and, you know, pretty much smacked it. Right. And had the wind knocked out of me. It was one of those moments that changed my life, but I didn't really understand it yet. We, they had taken me to the local hospital there, and basically the local hospital which just, was just a small hospital, and they said I was okay. I was just bruised up, and, and I would be okay. Well, that night, I was throwing up blood, and we were at the Oregon coast, which is a couple hours from Portland. So the next day, mom drove me to Portland. And before I knew it, it was 10 days later, and I'm waking up from a coma, and they had taken out 60% of my liver, 
gallbladder, cracked ribs, collapsed lung, 21 blood transfusions. I was told the surgery was 20 hours and I had a coma and a near-death experience. So as a 12-year-old kid, I got smacked. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I got to rephrase. I, I want to rephrase that because that sounded like being a victim and I wasn't a victim. It just happened, right? But I got smacked and life smacked me. And um, I had this near-death experience where I had left my body as, as a kid. And then I felt myself starting to come back. And I was in a garden area when I was outside of my body. I don't know how long. And there was some spirit around. And when I was coming back, I reached back out and said, I don't want to go. And they said, well, you're not through yet. And I came back and I always equated that as the time that I woke up or that I came mm-hmm. out of the coma. And there I was laying in this emergency. Well, it wasn't, it was the intensive care unit. And at the time, I mean, there was four people. You can't have rooms like that anymore, but back then you could. But so I, I woke up and, you know, it took a little bit. I mean, they didn't just like right away say, well, you had 60% of your liver out, kid. You know, it was a, a slow dissemination of information, so to speak. Uh, but I, I knew my life was different and it was changed. And I, I ended up, I had a tube in the side of me for about six months. I didn't start, this was between sixth and seventh grade. I didn't start school until January. I had a tutor um, after about a month in the hospital, the doctor sent me home and then he would come over every morning on his rounds and check on me at home rather than keeping me in the hospital. And so I had that and, you know, my self-esteem really suffered. You know, I went from this very active athletic kid, um, you know, top of my game at 12 years old, but a 12 year old, mm-hmm. right. And having a lot of fun and being the captain of teams and, and all that kind of stuff to not being able to play, to feeling like something was wrong with me and the girls weren't going to like me. And uh, because I'd had this accident and all these scars on my body and not realizing that some girls kind of think that's cool. Right. You know, a dude with scars, right? <laughs> but I'm a kid, yeah. you know? Uh, I became angry. And I became angry at God because I didn't want to come back. And I felt like, why would God do this to me? Why would God, you know, do this accident? Why would God do all these things? And then send me back because it was r- really nice over there, right? But send me back. But so I started really diving into alcohol and pot, you know, I'd have a cigarette, I'd have a joint, I'd have a couple of beers and it made me feel stronger and it made me feel bigger. And it covered up my struggles that I was having emotionally and my self-esteem and my mental health at the time. And at the same time, my parents were really, you know, happy to have their kid alive. They were just happy that I was alive. Yeah. Because, you know, I wasn't expected to live. And even the surgeon later on in, in talking to him, he said, I stitched you up, but I didn't save you. He says, you know, some power or God or, or something else 
saved you? He says, I just did the stitching. And I said, how many stitches? He says, I have no idea. He said, you had way more internal stitching than you did external. You know, I got a big scar uh, pretty much covering my, my whole chest from that accident. So it was, it was a pretty big deal. And like I said, I started getting pretty wild, rebelling and all of that, and all the trouble that goes in line with, with all of that was going on. And then my dad died in 1985. When he died, I was 26. So I was pretty young when he died. He died of a heart attack, 58 years old. His dad, uh, my grandfather, was 52 when he died of a heart attack. So I didn't ever meet my grandfather. But the kind of the feeling in the family was that we're all the boys, and I've got three older brothers. There's four four boys all together. Were any of us going to get out of the 50s alive? Was kind of the thinking at the time. And so dad passed, but a year after that, I started get, getting some tingling sensations in my leg. And I didn't really know what was quite going on. I kind of ignored for a while. And I ended up going to a chiropractor. And they said, you don't have anything that I can help you with. You need to go see a doctor. Well, by the time I was doing this, my walking was, was getting difficult. I was using a cane at times. And I ended up at the bachelor department at OHSU, which is Oregon Health Sciences University. And as they started doing the exam, as the nurse started doing the exam, she called in a doctor. She stopped the exam. She called in the doctor. Doctor came in, and it turns out that my right leg was 100% blocked, the arteries in my leg, and my left leg was 65% blocked. So now I'm 27 years old, you know, thinking that I had survived this other thing. Now I got this thing called peripheral vascular disease. All my blood panels were normal. My cholesterol is normal. It's not like I had 400 cholesterol. I had 150 cholesterol. So all of that was normal. But the, the doctors ended up, you know, doing a bypass surgery. It was called a fempop on both my legs to help restore the blood flow. A month later, I was back in the hospital with blood clots. And then the following year, about eight months later, I was back in again because my legs had reblocked. And they wanted to do the surgery again. And Alex, that's where I said, no, you're not going to do it again. And here I am, you know, picture this, you know, I'm at OHSU, you know, University Hospital, surrounded by the vascular professor, assistant professor, and some other surgeons that are apparently they were the best in the world. And they said, if you don't have this surgery Within six months, we will have amputated your legs and you'll likely die. Oh. I said, I'm not doing surgery. I was one stubborn kid, Alex. <laughs> one, one stubborn. And I left the hospital AMA against medical advice. And I went back once after that, about a year later. That was it. Um, I rarely seen a, see a doctor, maybe... I saw a doctor maybe six months ago to clean some wax out of my ear because I couldn't get all the wax out. But since that time, 35 years ago, 
I have more doctors coming to me for help than me going to doctors, right? So let me tell you how that happened. And this is important. This is like, you know, the rise to the challenge kind of thing. You know, so it's like, okay, what am I going to do? I didn't know what I was going to do when I left the hospital AMA, but I ended up at a place called the Pritikin Longevity Center, which was down in Santa Monica. I was living in Portland. They were down in, in Santa Monica. And the reason I went there is because I wrote this book or read this book by this guy named uh, Nathan Pritikin and or Robert Pritikin. He, he had wrote this book about, you know, eating food and plant-based food at the time it was called more vegan than plant-based, but eating primarily vegetables and such can reverse heart disease. And I didn't have any cardio issues. I had peripheral vascular issues and I called them. I said, would this help? They said, well, come and try. So when I got there, Alex, I could walk maybe 10 feet with a cane on one side and holding the wall on the other side. I was a wall walker a lot. Within two weeks, I was walking two miles. Wow. So they put me on, on this food. But then the other thing that happened is the doctor there said, when it hurts, get up and walk. Well, these other doctors in Portland said, when it hurts, don't walk. You got to rest. You got to take care of yourself, right? The doctor down there said, when it, get, when it hurts, walk. They said, just go out on the boardwalk. And I don't know if you've been down there, Santa Monica, because Santa Monica Pier and it goes down to Marina del Rey and past Venice Beach, which is Muscle Beach and all that. So the boardwalk goes right along the beach. And I go out there and, you know, again, you know, I'm still struggling with my self-esteem quite a bit. And there's girls on rollerblades down there, Alex, on the boardwalk. Who knew that? Right? Right along the beach. So as I started walking along, I didn't want to be the 97-pound weakling going down the beach. So I stood tall, and I walked into this pain, and I walked into this pain, and I walked into this pain. And the doctor told me by doing that, I would build new blood vessels in my legs. That's part of the reason I went from 10 feet to two miles in two weeks, that fast. Today... You know, my goal this year has been to climb a butte every week. And a butte, for those that don't really know what it is, uh, it's a volcanic butte, you know, looks like a snow cone, you know, kind of a rounded top mountain. And we have them all over the place because Central Oregon is very volcanic and there's a lot of volcanoes here. Mm -hmm. So every every week, sometimes a couple times a week, I'm going up and down these remote buttes. Most of them are off trail, very few trails. A friend of mine and I, we like to say trails are for tourists, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're off trail all the time. But so here I am 35 years later, I'm alive, I'm kicking, I'm running up and down the mountains. And, you know, it that rebellious nature that I had as a kid after my first accident, you know, really benefited me with my legs because I, was I wasn't going to do what those damn doctors told me to do. I was going to do it my way. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know what that way was going to be. I didn't know when I left the hospital what was going to happen. But I got led to the Pritikin Center. And again, everything changed. You That's talk the short version. <laughs> 
You talked about after the accident, you didn't feel like you were yourself, where golf was something that was important to you and you weren't able to do it to that. So you went kind of through an identity change. Then you had that moment where you're in the hospital with going through the coma and now you are back out and you have this new chapter in your life. Did you feel that it was kind of like breaking ground, a fresh start where people get to know a different version of me, where I was an athlete, I went through the accident, and now people only know me as I went through all these procedures and things. But now I get to make a brand new start and kind of find something new that I enjoy, where you kind of had that battle and that kind of grit and determination to get back out there and start new. Yeah. The start new part didn't really happen or the awareness of it didn't really happen until my vascular disease. Because mm-hmm. as a kid, it wasn't like, oh, great, this happened. I can go out and start something new. It wasn't my thinking at the time. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, I became, again, very angry and very resentful towards God. and didn't like him. And in the whole process of, um, you know, my wildness and the, the vascular disease coming coming up, you know, and, and drinking and all of that. There was another moment where I drank a whole bunch one night and I ended up in the hospital. This was after my surgeries, um, almost two years, about two years after the first surgeries. Um, and I ended up in the hospital. A friend of mine came to me and he said, are you ready? And I knew exactly what he meant. And at that moment, I then knew that I was in for a fresh start. And this anger and this resentment that I had towards God at the time was evaporated. I had no place else to turn. Mm-hmm. It's the only place that I had to turn was to God or higher power, the universe, whatever you want to call it. I needed to turn to this thing. Um, and it's it's kind of like, when I walked out of the hospital that one day, not knowing where I was going to go, I knew the day when I decided that I needed to make the change and my anger went away and then my love came in that my life was going to change and that there was that fresh start that I heard you ask about. That's where it really came, you know, and that's where I was ready, so to speak. With all the changes that you had in your life, did that play an effect on what you wanted to do as a career or before, or let's paint the picture before the accident, what was that dream job for you? And then going through everything, did you kind of have that you want to do the same thing or did it lead to a new opportunity and a career path? Well, as a kid and growing up, um, I thought that I would get involved in my dad's companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I would do something there. And they said he he had a bunch of gas stations. He owned Thrifty Rent-A-Car in Portland and Hawaii and some heating oil companies and um, a few other commercial properties. So I thought that I would be part of that at some mm-hmm. point. Again, he died young. Um and as I get into my early 20s, I was also interested in photography. So okay. I was doing a lot of photography and making money. But 
post the surgery on my legs, I needed to do something different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had a few different jobs. I, I did some mortgages. I, um, you know, I'm still in my 20s. I managed a 7-Eleven store in 1987. Okay. A long time ago. I look <laughs> back on that now and I think, wow, I really managed one of those things. But I went from managing one store to working for FSA, which is Food Services of America, mm -hmm. running their Southland account. And there was whatever the count was, 93 Southland 7-Eleven stores in Portland. So I was running that food account for them. That happened pretty quickly. And um, then I actually, I, I wrote a letter to Wholesome Hardy, which owns Garden Burger, and they were in Portland. And I wrote them a letter way back before there's any other Garden Burgers out there. I, I wrote them a letter and it was a one page letter. They called me, they offered me a job as a Western Regional Sales Manager. And I rejected the job. And the primary reason I rejected the job was that um, there was about 80 to 90% travel. My oh. mom had just doc got diagnosed with cancer. And there's no way that I was going to be on the road while my mom was going through her, her medical stuff with all the cancer and be gone. I couldn't do it. Some people could. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I ended up getting a job at a place called Great Performance, which was really key to even what we do today. I mean, we built training programs, a lot of HR type programs for larger corporations, thousand plus employees in, in government, um, you know, all, all the different type of HR type stuff primarily is what we did. There was about 50, 52 employees, something like that. In that company. So I got involved with that and got involved with training and understanding the training business. You know, it was different back then. For those that don't know, there was something called videotapes. We <laughs> put some of the programs on video, right? But it even today, because I do training type stuff today, it gave me an understanding of how to put these together. Yeah. You know, how to put the programs together. So it was a great job. In many ways, I hated it. And the company ended up being sold and pretty much got ate up by the, the, the new company. It just got absorbed into the company. And most of the, there were probably 45 of the employees were no longer there after a year. Wow. Yeah, mo most. Um, so there, there were some variations. But after that, that was my last real job. And I, I left that job in early 95 and it was the best thing that ever happened. So I've been an unemployed ever since 1995 as such, or not really unemployed. I say that jokingly, that entrepreneur spirit came back. Yeah. And it's like something that dad planted in us as kids that, you know, about self-sufficiency and taking care of yourself and he used to always say, he said, find something somebody wants to buy and sell it to them. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that was his methodology. And for him, it was gas. He took it over from his dad when his dad died. But his thing was gas and, and oil and rent-a-cars. Right. 
because those are things that we all need. Yeah. Right. We don't necessarily need rental cars, but if you're in Waikiki Beach, you need a rental car. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're in Hawaii. So, I mean, he was pretty good. So um, I did some option trading in the mid nineties. I, I made a bunch of money doing that. I still had some pain in my body. I decided that, and I was, I started yoga. I started yoga at this pretty center down in California. And I ended up going to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Bikram yoga, but it's mm-hmm. the hot yoga. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And I went to a Bikram's training. He's a person. I went to his training in 98 and I was one of his first, I was maybe teacher 100. Now there's about 20,000 teachers. Wow. And I, I went to the training to heal my body. And he said something to me, Alex, and this is, still relevant to me today. And I've heard this same type of thing from different um, teachers or leaders or transformational leaders, whatever you want to say it. But it's the first time I really heard it was from Bikram. He said, don't worry about it. Forget about it and just do the yoga. Because I had all these worries. I didn't want to forget about things. And that still is my number one lesson in yoga is don't worry about, forget about it, just do the yoga. You could say, don't worry about it, forget about it, just live your life. I mean, there's different ways Mm -hmm. of saying it, right? And the pain that I had remaining in my body that I was managing, coping with, you know, my pain level of one or two that would come up from time to time, all went away. Wow. Now, I didn't want to be a teacher. I just want, I wanted to go to the training to heal my body. A week after that, I started teaching. A year after that, I had my first yoga studio. Then had another yoga studio. I helped uh, him train six or 7,000 yoga teachers. I started a company called Yoga Business Expert, which was really about the business side of yoga and fitness business on attracting, enrolling, and retaining um, new members and, Mm -hmm. and new students. And conservatively because there's different financials and such and i never put them all together i recently conservatively estimated that generated about 40 million dollars with probably a 30 percent net on that average some of that was killed with covid it was actually all killed Uh, because by the time covid came along i had let go of the coaching side of it and was doing revenue shares on some of the studios but within six days of early march end of february early march when covid started revenue was gone just like that just like that and most of not all the studios closed but many studios closed just like jim gold uh 24 hour i mean you know they went through bankruptcy and a, a lot of that stuff But during that whole time, I was applying what I understood about the training and going back to what I had learned before and started training people, started teaching people how to uh, talk in front of other people, how to get their story and message out. So all that was part of what I was doing along the way. A lot of your journey, I've noticed just from listening, is where you take a concept and you go full force with it, where 
like you even talked about like the whole gas station thing where yep. you managed a 7-Eleven, but then you went full force and you went even bigger and yeah. bigger. And that's just a lot of what a lot of people should take where, especially with college, where they like a certain topic, but maybe they can't find that job where it can really get them. But you just start expanding it. Like I yeah. went to college for sports management, love sports. Yeah but it's a hard business to get into because you have to start at the very bottom. But I took my love and passion for the business world and I went in there and now I'm like, okay, I want even more. I want even more, keep getting bigger and bigger. And it's just so much fun. And I can see it just in your passion. Now I want to go back to the yoga thing. COVID definitely hit a lot of people in entrepreneurial world. But did you ever think about taking the whole idea of, the HR side or the training side and mixing with the yoga and kind of doing that online platform? Because you talked about videotapes. And I remember when I worked at a grocery store and I was training people on the HR side, had to pull out that tape. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And my mom still works for a grocery store. And she goes, yeah, everything's digital now. I go, where was that when I was there? Did you ever think about combining those two, two things that you enjoy doing? Yeah, well, part of my yoga business actually platform, I did have an extensive training in there. And we probably had, I don't know, 100 videos, Okay, there was 15 different modules. So there was a lot of that incorporated. However, about two years before COVID really kicked in, I started shutting that down because I didn't want to do that same level of coaching. Mm -hmm. but that these revenue share agreements were coming into place and I didn't have to do as much coaching and training. I just had to, to manage the revenue share and some of the marketing aspect of those agreements. Mm -hmm. So I had already kind of shifted out of there. I still have all of that, those videos. I still have all of those modules and I use them today. I still do some coaching, but on a different way. Um, I use them today and I'm able to repurpose a lot of that content for what I'm doing now. I definitely, I like that because nowadays everyone wants it easy access to it. Everyone wants it digitally. And I think, I know for me, if I see a video and I'm like passionate about it, I will definitely do it because me going to a class, it's like, judgment judgment now i got other people that are watching me when you do it at home it's like especially yoga i've had to do it because of injuries and just doing it at home on my own time it's just been so peaceful and nice and it helps with what i've been going through yeah there's no doubt and i mean i still teach today i teach six to ten classes a month but i don't own the studio which is Mm -hmm. perfectly okay with me You know, but teaching for me today is almost as important as my practice Mm -hmm. because it's like, and I don't make much money doing it. It, It's not like I don't do it for a living. I I do it as an avocation, you know, because of of my joy of doing it and and helping other people. Um, But it's interesting too, because you had a previous guest on uh, Travis Fox, which you had him on recently. And we were in a uh, mastermind group together a couple of years ago for a while. So I, I know Travis a little bit. 
And, you know, he started something called the Ultimate Business Quest. Mm-hmm. And it's an app that is on the phone, which is really a platform to begin to think about ideas in business. And it's, it's actually a, pre, a free platform and it's not even online. It's just on your phone. Right. Yep. Um, and he's done a great job with that. Travis is really great. He's really smart, you know, in what, what he's done with that. You know, and, you know, and then, you know, somebody even like Amanda Webster, which you had on talking more about the mental health, you know, yeah. type, which was, you know, really great. And it's just like, even that for online platforms, you see more and more of that, you know, um, another guest that, that you had on um, Deborah, Deborah Driggs. Yep. And she she does a, a mental health and she has an online platform, I, I believe, as well. Um, so it's really the way to do it today, like like you said. You know, it's it's the best way to look to deliver. Now, the interesting thing that I think about COVID, yeah, it killed a lot of businesses, and unfortunately, a lot of people died from it. A lot of people got sick. I never got sick from it. Um, you know cross my heart and knock on wood and all that other kind of stuff. But I, I have not been sick from it. But one of the things that it did was in some ways it pushed people away, but in some ways it brought people together. Yes. You know, um, especially like through this thing called zoom, you know, zoom, like, you know, 10 X in price overnight because everybody started talking to everybody online. So now you can talk to anybody virtually anywhere in the world today on Zoom. And so in some ways, like I work with some people in Europe and some of the Eastern European countries, and we're on Zoom all the time. That probably would not have happened if it wasn't for COVID. Yeah. You know, because there used to be more in-person type stuff. You'd go to a seminar, you'd go to an event, you'd hop on a plane, you'd fly to St. Louis or wherever you were flying to to meet. Something that you mentioned that I can relate to is the whole with Zoom and stuff. And I always say, if the pandemic didn't happen, this whole show would not be here for me. I would definitely, I got to make sure I point the right way. I wouldn't have the <laughs> sign. This sign has definitely changed my life. And the pandemic, as much as it's been hard on everyone, it created something that I'm so passionate about and something that I wouldn't get to meet all these amazing people like yourself doing this show and so it's rewarding in a way and it's just the power of zoom where i've guessed in other continents countries and things like that it's just wild that i'm giving the opportunity to do that looking at your journey do you feel that each step as much as you probably wouldn't want to go through the water skiing accident, going through the surgeries and procedures, do you feel it's taught you a lot about yourself as an individual and what you're able to do, the power that you have in yourself? It's a great question. And I wouldn't change anything, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. There's, I, I feel that oftentimes our greatest asset in life is our past and our challenges that we faced and the hitting the bottoms and all these different things make who we are. There's nobody that I know that gets away with not having problems and challenges. It's part of life. Yeah. And 
I've been able to take my challenges, you know, my water skiing accident, uh, my wildness and drinking, my peripheral vascular disease. I've been able to take those things. You know, I wrote a book about it, right? Falling down, getting up. I, I would not have written that book. And now there's people that have read this book that write me notes and say, thank you for writing the book. It inspired me to do something different. So I, w- I wouldn't be able to do that unless I had those challenges. Yep. So again, I mean, your show Rise to the Challenge is like perfect, right? <laughs> right? So those things, you know, are still being used. Like, you know, and today I have a huge passion for stories and getting stories out, our personal stories and and understanding and recognizing what our stories are about and what is real and what is false and, and all of this. But like you, you have all these incredible guests, some of what we've mentioned and many, many more. And you're like this storytelling guru master dude <laughs> that brings these people on to talk about their challenges. And I'll guarantee you, there's listeners that have listened to one of these shows that didn't commit suicide because they heard something from one of your guests. I'll guarantee it. Because I, I see it happen all the time. I'll guarantee it that people have listened to this show and, you know, changed something. They've done something different. They've started in business. They got inspired by somebody. They got mental health help. They got addiction help, whatever it might have been. So that power of story is so strong. Now, not everywhere in the world do people get to tell their stories. There's places that if you even say the word war, you go to jail. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just like, really? Is is it? so to me, it's almost like I almost feel like there's a responsibility to get stories out, to help other people, to help other people communicate and push against that type of energy and the way that I think that we can do it is the more that we can do it and the more that we can do it on podcasting or, or video or however we're, we're, we're doing it, the better off we all are. I always say everyone has a story. It may be small. It may be large. And sometimes people don't know how to share it or they don't want to share it unless it's like the right timing And I always say that I always feel that this show gives a platform to everyone. It could be small. It could be a challenge that's focused on business and it could be a challenge that's focused on mental health because there's always someone out there that is going through something similar and maybe they need that person to share because they're like, I don't know what to do in this situation. But that guest says something, they're like, I think I can try that. And we're not a show that tells people how to live their life. Right. And I always say, especially with my story as a type one diabetic, and I have other type one diabetics on our show where we're able to relate to each other, but I learned so much from their story as much as they learned so much from me sharing my story. Right. And that's what I love. And you talking about it is just inspiring because Someone listening may be going through something similar where they're having those rock bottoms, but they hear that title of your book and they know that they can get up, they can battle through it and they can accomplish whatever they want. Yeah. And that, that's what it's about. And that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, I have not 
quite frankly, I have not even looked at my royalty reports. I can go <laughs> look at them online for probably two years, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Yep. That's not why I wrote the book was to, you know, glance, you know, every month at my royalty reports. It doesn't matter. Do you feel that you have another book in you to write? Or are you oh, already yeah. doing it? Another one, which I'm not quite able to talk about yet, is coming out in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. There's a couple more planned for next year. Um, I was also in this book here called Expert Success Solutions, which it was a compilation with a couple of, of other people too, Wendy and Rick. So um, I was part of that. Uh, actually, um, George Hamilton, the actor, he forwarded the, the book for us on this one. Um, and so I was part of that. And actually, Jay Cowan Levinson, if you know who he is or the listeners, he was the father of guerrilla marketing. So he forwarded this book, The Falling Down Book. And um, I've got a little video on my website with uh, David Hancock, which is the publisher of Morgan James Publishing. And he did a, a short little video for my website. And he mentioned how Jay talked about how what I went through and how I recovered was similar to guerrilla marketing because like guerrilla marketing is this idea about, you know, using unusual techniques and tactics to Mm -hmm. promote your business. And so Jay saw that I was using that same type of thinking, but applying it to life. Right. So yes, there are more books on the way. Well, we can't wait to see what those books are, <laughs> even though you can't reveal it yet. As a personal journey, is there anything you hope to accomplish in your future? Or what does the future look like for you, both personally and professionally? Well, right now, and I mentioned this already, you know, I have a huge passion for stories. And mm. it's not just the idea of stories, it's more the idea of helping more people connect in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's like my primary driver right now. Um, I will tell you some, another thing that, you know, I look forward to, and I did this a while ago, you know, this is my iPhone, you know, we all have our, or most people have some type of calendar. Um, so I put in my calendar that I'm going to do a yoga class every day or every birthday until I'm 110. So I set that up on my calendar because I wanted to look forward to when I'm 100 years old doing a yoga class or 108. And, um, you know, it's just like, why not? Why not put that out there? And why not have, um, you know, those type of aspirations and those type of goals? I mean, you never know. I'm still alive now when I was supposed to be dead several times, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, God willing, I'll still be alive in another 30 years. Is there a type of yoga that you try to do each? Are you, well, this might be, you haven't thought about it, but each birthday, do you try to do something different with the yoga style or the yoga class or nope. whatever you feel like doing that day? That's what you do. I do the hot yoga, the Bikram yoga. I mean, it's just so wild. I, I did hot yoga once. And I'm like, okay, this just feels like I'm in a sauna. Yeah. But 
there's something relaxing about it, which is crazy to say. I mean, people that are listening to this is probably, what is he talking about? Who wants to be in a hot box all day? But it's just relaxing because you don't even think about the heat because you're so focused and zenned in during that time. Absolutely. And, you know, the the thing about the, the Bikram yoga and the hot yoga you know, none of the postures are more than a minute long. Yeah. Most of the postures are 10 to 30 seconds long. There's a pause. Um, half the class you're on the floor, but the posture that's actually the longest is Savasana, which is where you're relaxing on the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, and once you're done with the standing portion, you're lying down for two minutes or about two minutes, and then you start again and you're doing Savasanas in between each posture, and then you do uh, more savasana at the end of class. So for 14, 15, 16 minutes of class total, you're just lying there doing nothing in a hot room. (laughs) (laughs) The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? That's a big question. <laughs> we we could talk about that for another hour. Just yeah. <laughs> one one of the things that for me that may be helpful to for other people as well is, you know, I heard a long time ago that everything is going to be okay, that no matter what, and it's very easy to, um you know, experience low self-esteem, mental health issues, addictions, and all those different things in thinking that we're not good enough, you know, and all of that. Yet, for me, if I had not gone through that, Mm -hmm. I would not be able to have the life I have today. I have the life today because of that. Mm -hmm. So it was like, the challenges for me today are what gives us feedback and information on how to be better people, mm-hmm. you know, how to open our heart more, how to be kinder in relationships and with family and even with the person at the gas station, whatever it might be, right? It's just to overcome that. And, and you know, for those that know who, who that knew who W. Clement Stone was, he's no longer alive. Him and Napoleon Hill were friends, and Napoleon Hill wrote the book, Think and Grow Rich. And W. Clement Stone thought that the single biggest problem in the world was procrastination, that people were procrastinating for whatever reasons, self-esteem, they didn't believe it, they got some challenge, they got some injury, whatever, and so they didn't think that they were good enough. So he would say to himself a hundred times, a hundred times a day. For years, do it now, do it now, do it now, do it now, a hundred times. And so I think sometimes, I know for me, I've made many excuses to not do it now, not do it now, not do it now, not do it now. But I had to switch that, right? Mm -hmm. And know that everything is going to be okay, regardless of what happens. 
Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.